0: Roan Mountain Radio, episode 73. Welcome to Roan Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. This is a podcast about Roan Mountain, the jewel of the southern Appalachian Mountain, always located on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. Today, we're going to talk with Sam Drogi. Sam will be a presenter at the Spring Naturalist Rally. He'll be there Friday, April the 28th, and talking about bees for birders discovering native bee watching through binoculars brief introduction about sam Drogi. he works at the usgs patuxent wildlife research center in maryland and he has worked on a whole lot of interesting research things such as the north american amphibian monitoring program the bio blitz the cricket crawl and the frog watch but enough about that. <laughs> That's topic for another day and another podcast. but he is going to be at the spring rally April 28th, the Friday night presentation discovering native bees through binoculars is really fascinating. The diversity in your flower garden, in your in your flower bed, the the weeds, the blooming everything around your yard or house native bees are attracted to specific bees for specific flowers is just is really fascinating so that's what sam is going to present and we'll we'll jump into that right away but first a few notes registration and information available for the rally can be located at the friendsofroanemountain.org that's friends of rhone and abbreviate mountain as mtn.org You'll scroll down below the beautiful picture of Roan Mountain and see a, a link to get information on the brochure the spring rally schedule and brochure and also you can now register and pay for your meals and registration online to speed you up when you get to the mountain. so that's some new information you can register in person the day you walk in that's okay if you you can even register on Saturday morning for the hikes where we are very accommodating we want you to get on the mountain and enjoy some of the beauty of Roan Mountain also coming up April the 22nd the Southern Appalachian High Island's Conservancy is gathering together everybody who is interested in preserving Roan Mountain and helping to protect it from the invasive plant species. And this one in particular is the garlic mustard. Now when we talk to Sam Drogi, you'll find out that yes there are specific bees they go to specific native wildflowers and what the garlic mustard does is it pushes out these native wildflowers and that means it pushes out the native bee species and then on and on and on you can be a part of the solution to help that day pulling the garlic mustard is not a difficult job you just have to know where it is and what to look for and fill up your great big bag full of the evil garlic mustard more about that later but now we're going to talk to Sam Drogie and the presentation he'll be giving at the April 28th Friends of Roan Mountain Spring and Naturalist Rally. I hope you enjoy it. Well Sam Drogie, I'm really glad to have you with us. This is Roan Mountain Radio episode 73 and looking forward to your presentation at the Friends of Roan Mountain spring naturalist rally and your title the one that's in the program is bees for birders discovering native bee watching through binoculars so sam i appreciate it give us a little preview of of what we can expect the background is that if you look at
1: who looks at bees and who identifies bees it's almost always Um, scientists with a little bit of folks who now have good macro lenses, taking pictures and submitting them to something like bugguide.net, which is uh, a place that Iowa State runs that you can get insects identified online. There's not really the same cadre of uh, people like there might be with uh, odonates, so dragonflies and damselflies, or butterflies, and certainly not with birds, where people are going out regularly, there's club activities, they're identifying bees on their own, almost always are not well, identifying bees, or you know the butterfly people would be doing that. With binoculars and reporting them to listservs, you just don't have that sort of citizen amateur group that's behind bees and one of the reasons is is that there's no information in terms of field guides or field identifications and if you talk to scientists like myself until fairly recently you would find out that we would say nope can't really identify anything in the field um, it has to be under the microscope that was certainly true and there were no field guides and there still are no true field guides things that you would take out with take out into the field with you like you might with a bird guide, or your your bees, or your butterfly. I confused mine. There's too many bees, bees, butterflies, birds. The Butterflies Through Binoculars book, which sort of changed how people worked with and uh, looked at butterflies, less collecting, more about observations, and more about you know going out and enjoying them as they flew about. So the spoof here is that someone gave me a pair of butterfly binoculars, uh, Pentax, Papillon. The cool thing, it, it's eight power, and it focuses down to only a foot and a half away. And I started playing around with these, and all of a sudden I realized, like, you know, I can see a lot of the characteristics that I can see in the microscope, which I can't really see with my naked eye, but these binoculars actually make it possible for me to identify a lot of the bees that I'm, I'm looking at that are, as they come okay. from flowers that I, I really just can't do by eye. and The same would be true, like if you were a butterfly watcher, you would have a hard time with some of the hair streaks and some of the azures and things like that, just looking at them with your eye. But with a pair of binoculars, you're in the game. All those horrible little dusky wings and the little <laughs> dotted skippers and things like that, which are super hard to ID, but it is possible with binoculars. I've written, let's call it a book, but it'll be a giveaway PDF and associated Word document. And then hopefully it'll, you'll be able to print it out on Lulu Press maybe. Well, it's really a collaborative thing. So the idea is that initially, at least to the genus, you'll be able to identify bees on the wing or really not so much on the wing, but on flowers. If you think about that from a natural history point of view, If you go out into the field and you're looking at bees, butterflies and birds, it's actually a lot easier to find bees than it is butterflies and certainly a lot more than birds, which are, you know, you're craning your neck way up and they often don't cooperate. Um, But here, right sort of mostly at eye level are a bunch of bees and they dominate almost everyone's butterfly garden or regular garden or even your lawn is filled with Many, many, many kinds of bees, and there's many more species. They're much, the densities are much higher compared to butterflies. So it actually would be, I think, a very attractive thing for amateurs to pick up if there were such a guide. So my hope is that this will be the first voyage, or viewing, or something of of this book, this field guide. So before the naturalist ra- uh, rally, I'll have the the book up uh, on a uh, website and or a FTP site so people can download them and then what I hope to do is talk about bees as you might talk about butterfly identification or talk about bird identification you know the nuances how you go about it and kind of give a an id talk can also talk about some of the cool things they do which is what I do in most of my lectures but here you know it's a place filled with naturalists so I'm going to put it out there it'll be the first time
0: that um, people will hear about it. Well, this is fantastic. Right? Yeah. So, the, the the Spring Naturalist Rally will be is it a first availability of this this PDF or this ebook? Yeah, and it'll be free. It's all
1: everything's free. And um, additionally, the kind of another novelty here is that we actually want people to take the original Word documents, which will be available, and modify them to meet whatever their needs are, or if they decide, you know, I, I kind of like the concept, but I, I see the need for several changes, or I want different or better pictures in there, or I'm going to reorder the text, or I'm going to modify it for North Carolina, right. or only for Roan Mountain, or something like that. And so we really want people, because there's going to be no copyrights on it, and it'll say right at the beginning that, the idea is to um, allow people to you know modify without any permissions. So the idea is we want you to steal it <laughs> and uh, make it your own. And that will ultimately result in better guides and locally tended guides. And there's a lot of learning that has to go on. You know, I'm just one person and the the people that we work on uh, with to create the guide, you know, we're just this small little insular group. and once we, release this to a larger audience. I'm sure that people will come up with better ways to say the same thing. We're a little too probably oriented towards jargon and scientific terminology. Um, so let
0: the uh, evolution begin. Oh, that's an exciting way to gather information there. You're referring to the group. Is, is that Discover Life? Uh, no, it's just a it's
1: a collection of uh, people who had a lot of experience with um, bee identification oh, okay. in the field and that I just tapped into. So it's a very open-ended group, and if people send me you know, some more information, then my version that I'm keeping of the, the book within the group will just add in their information and then you know, add them to the acknowledgements. There won't actually be any authors. It's going to be an authorless book, again, to encourage people to take and modify it as much as they'd like. And through kind of a natural book selection or something, What I would hope is that there's competing versions of the book um, and that over time that coalesces to what best fits different groups' needs.
0: This this book project sounds just really awesome. That sounds like a huge undertaking on your part also. Yeah, and it'll be it'll be evolving.
1: Again, like I said, we want people to take the book and test it and add their own modifications or they can send you know suggestions back to me too, fine and I'll you know, we'll merge them into it. And then I'm going to so right now it's to Genus and I can't remember the exact number, but let's say there's 50 to 60 different genera of bees. And then uh, once I put this out, you know, sort of again as this this test footprint, like, okay, what do people think? Are they Is it useful? What's not useful? And we get some feedback on that and people modify it as they, w- they want. But I'll start working at species level aspects to it too. You know, like the bumblebees will probably be the very first one I do. So in um, North Carolina, there's probably 15 different species of bumblebees. Wow. They have different kinds of characteristics. And the the question is, can I present them in a way that people with binoculars can, you know, just go out in the field and and look for them? Okay. So that ultimately will go to a species level guide or species group, because some some groups of bees are so incredibly similar that we struggle even with a microscope to tell them apart. But that's okay because others others can be identified. To groups, and then maybe someone else will come up with some, you know, clever, like, "Oh, I think I can tell," <laughs> you know, the ones we don't think we can tell. Right? You know, that's part of giving it to the naturalists rather than giving it to the scientists. Often, it's the amateur naturalists that make a lot of the core contributions to distribution, abundance, and identification, not the uh, dweeby <laughs> bird and butterfly <laughs> scientist.
0: Understood? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right now, the the amateur naturalist has no real toehold into that world, right? Because no one, no one has attempted to do a true field guide. Um, There's books about about bees in your gardens or bees in your backyards, but it's still very academic. So this is all no no chatter. It's all about you know the whatever your counterpart is and butterflies and and birds in terms of uh, coloration and veins and behavior that help you ID it. That's it. It's only about identifications. If you want information about all the cool other things they do, plenty of other books for that.
0: And they, they can delve in deeper in that whatever specialty they want to. Right,
1: and that's going to be a help all around because if you do see interesting behavior and if you're out looking at just to identify bees and you'll come across things but you still like the core is always going to be what was that bee and right now pretty much stuck um, or it's some kind of guess or a category type of thing so we want to really so backing up here's the problem is we know so little about the status of native bees. People talk about declines, or and such like. This. Right. They don't know what they're talking about. There's no information on the status of native bees. I can tell you, as a guess, that there's been declines because we know that when you pave a piece of property, there are no more bees there. Right. So in urbanization kinds of things, you know, those are negatives, and as are as is um, industrial agriculture. So if you are doing row crops and you've eliminated all the weeds and other flowering plants, and uh, you're planting corn, there are just no bees in there. Or worse, it's attractive to bees for a nesting site, and then you plow up all the nests. So we know just by the fact that the world is becoming more and more a, a human-used place that there's less available for room for bees. But if you, you know, want real data like uh, we might have for the breeding bird survey for birds or, you know, just an assessment based on the many amateur groups who do butterflies. Nope, not there. Many states have really no one working on bees at all, and there's huge swaths of land where there are absolutely no records for anyone looking, i.e. collecting, would be in the past, bees. So I'm really hoping that this is something that we can involve amateurs in because they're, they're boots on the ground. Right. And government, you know, the federal government and state governments are not going to really fill in the gap anytime soon with people doing what bird watchers and butterfly watchers do.
0: Right. So now you distinguish so the, idea. Um, the decline of native bees versus, uh, what would it be, commercial bees? honey, honey bees, bees Are the commercial
1: species. Um, there are, you can buy commercially um Bumblebees, and you can buy uh, well one species of bumblebee, and you can buy commercially um some Osmia species, but in the scheme of things, they're small potatoes compared to um honeybee management and and honeybees are not native the whole genus is not native to um the hemisphere, even wow okay and, um. Yeah, the, and I'll, t- I'll talk about that because I, I have to because that's people's reference. Right. But the basic issue with honeybees is that if you want honey, you need honeybees. If you're in some industrial agricultural areas that require pollination by an insect, such as the almond crop, then you need honeybees. But the average backyard garden, the small apple orchards that we have throughout the East, none of those require honeybees. Because native species will move into those areas and do your pollination. It's super attractive, you know, you got a whole field filled with blooming cherry or apple orchards. Right. Why would you hang around in the woods if you were a bee? It's like, no, there's tons of pollen and nectar here. So they do most of that work and in your backyard in particular, there's no need to bring in honeybees for pollination. Think of them yeah. yet. Yeah, for pollination. So we, we actually discourage people because from doing honeybees, if they just think that keeping honeybees is a, air quote, good thing for the environment, because it's actually not. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a good thing if, you want, if you want honey, it's a good thing. And if you're completely fascinated by honeybees, which you should be because they're so incredibly different than our native species, that's a good thing but if you simply are keeping honeybees or allowing people to keep honeybees on your property because you think that the environment benefits from that that's that's not the case that's um it's actually the opposite so that honeybee colony is a subsidized group of bees that are just vacuuming up pollen and nectar that now becomes unavailable for the native species in the area without really improving the pollination of native plants and flowers and Things like that, particularly in protected areas, we really discourage them from being placed into high value biodiverse plant, you know floral florally rich areas. Because they displace the native bees, right and they're they're not necessary. So you're not increasing the pollination or or doing the pollination with honeybees in those areas. You're simply bringing in competitors. it's It would be similar to this that you would bring in hogs and chickens into an area as like, well, I'm bringing in birds, what's the problem with that? I'm bringing in more mammals, what's the problem with that? Well, we know what the problem is with both of those, particularly hogs, they don't have a place in the the Eastern environments. And so they're disruptive and they're jarring and they're competing with other species and they're destructive in a way. So honeybees are in that, that same category but the negatives are subtle, and because everything's so small, we don't, we don't really notice them. So culturally, there's lots of reasons to have hogs, chickens, and honeybees. But from a conservation point of view, they need to be kept in human-dominated landscapes and not simply you know, released into the environment, thinking that that's a positive in all those cases.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. I had no idea that that was a situation at all.
1: Yeah, most people don't. There's been honeybees in the continent since the 1600s, so whatever super bad negative things have happened are are over with. And the fact that feral honeybee colonies are lower is a, is actually a, quite a positive thing from the conservation point of view. But people still need because they there is a conflation of honeybee declines with all bee declines and a notion that honeybees are an important factor in protecting the environment rather than a cultural product that is a commodity, i.e. honey. So yeah, and I, again, I'd, I talk to lots of beekeeping groups, so I give them the sort of non-honeybee side which they're fascinated by and they're great folks. There's not a huge problem with people keeping honeybee hives. It's just the issue where people outside of the honeybee associations are paying people to run honeybees because they think that that's a you know something they need to be doing, and the answer is no, that's not, and it shouldn't be supported for that reason. There's no way I'm advocating for any associations or um, you know saying that beekeeping groups are in any way, shape, or form should change what they're doing. It's just that in some of these circumstances, it, uh, a different way of thinking needs to be presented, and most of the federal agencies don't do this anymore, and I think a lot of the states don't e- either, where honeybee hives are just not kept on in conservation areas anymore. Okay. I, I hadn't heard that either. Yeah. Well, Nash, yeah, National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service refuges, I I think in almost all cases, don't
0: don't allow honeybees in. Okay. Okay. Um, any way of encouraging, then, the native bees, if you have a backyard, like I've got a butterfly garden over here, to have a bee encouragement yeah. garden?
1: Yeah. Well, the so all bees um, require pollen to and nectar, but mostly the, the limiting factor is almost always pollen to feed their young and there's a little pollen snacking by adults sometimes. So no flowers, no bees is the simplest equation. And then it gets a little more complicated because different sizes and shapes of flowers that are wildflowers or in a florist shop, and then ask, well, why why, why all those shapes? And it turns out without getting into lots of details that there are lots of different sizes and shapes of bees and flowers are selecting for bees and bees for certain types and kinds, and there's a lot of specialization out there both on both sides of the equation. so you have groups of bees that will only gather pollen from one species of plant or a genus or a family of plants to feed their babies so they're they're at one end of the spectrum and then you have other bees um, that are generalists, so they will throughout the season and they're out for throughout the season whereas a specialist bee is only out during the time that their one plant blooms. The generalists are out throughout out the summer usually and they have multiple generations and they can use a wide variety of plants, but even they have preferences and sometimes they won't use some of the blooming plants that other species will use. So even honeybees, which we think of as this very general you know, user of all blooming plants, it just won't go to certain species. In other circumstances, it it might if it's the only plant in town that day. But if there's better better being better for the honeybee, right. better uh, plants available, they'll, they'll just fly off in that plant source. So all bees have, have their preferences. Some are super picky and others are not. So... Back to the way this plays in a person's backyard or in a place where they're thinking about doing some kind of pollinator planting or augmenting natural systems, the answer is plant native plants. You don't have to know all these details that we've studied and we have um, a website, I can send you a link to it, that documents the high, highly specialized species. So there's species on cactus, there's species on woodland sunflowers, there's species... That only go to willow, different kinds of vacciniums, and so forth.
0: Wow. Okay. So if you
1: want, you can can look that up. We have it for the mid Atlantic area and New England, and we'll be moving throughout the deep south, which is really coastal plain south, too, at some point. And then, um, you know, start from that list. You'll see lots and lots of plants you recognize. You will find that there will be native bees on introduced. Uh, Plants, the sweet clover, um, clovers in general, and lots of things. But those are the generalist bees. So they're happy with a lot of the introductions as well as uh, native species. It's the fact that um, when you get an invasive plant moving in an area, even if it does provide pollen and nectar, it's basically kicking out all the specialist bees whose native plants are are gone because they're outcompeted by garlic mustard or lesser celandine or, you know, fill in the blank kudzu has flowers bean like flowers there's some bees that will go to them but who advocates advocates for uh, (laughs) planting kudzu everywhere Uh, not anymore (laughs) no no and but it goes it's it's subtler too so for example bush honeysuckles yeah lots of bees go to bush honeysuckles great nectar source but the pollen is available only to a few species of bees and they're what I would call the crow and sparrow bees. These are bees that are in no way, shape or form in trouble from a conservation point of view and they exist in everyone's backyards as well as dipping into all these different kinds of blooming non-native plants. But what about the bees that only go to bring beauties or trout lilies or wild oats or, you know, and on and on and on. When an invasive plant usurps that area for them, those bees gone. And that would be true of other...
0: That specific of, a, of an appetite. Yep. So
1: that's why, in the, and again, in a very broad sense, a lot of different diversity of native plants equals a lot of different diversity of native bees. Don't sweat all the details. You know, with, should I plant this kind of echinacea or that kind of wild sunflower? You want to augment whatever the the native diversity is out there and look at, you know, what's under attack. And it might be that you need to control your deer populations or you need to do invasive control or you need to not let every single patch of open land succeed to forested environment because a lot of times the professional areas are where a lot of um, the rare, just think about birds and decline in a lot of the open country and, and scrub species. Same would be true. Any of the plants that are in that area that bloom if those disappear then the bees that are associated with them disappear too so um, it's all about biodiversity
0: wow sam that's uh that's a lot of information
1: <laughs> yeah well you know it's a big it's a big topic right yes like no one is going to interview someone a botanist say well tell me about plants tell me everything that about all the different <laughs> kinds of plants and how they're useful and where they live and what's rare and what's common, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Bees are as, as complicated as plants are. In fact, they co- all the flowering plants co-evolved with bees, see, so they've been around for as long as flowering plants have been around. So there should be no surprise that we have this equal complexity. We just haven't looked at it, right? We, we The studies are very, very few.
0: Well, I think you're going to really get some people motivated in that direction now. I'd like to. Yeah. Presentation, and then your new new book coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's appropriate to call it a book.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I have, a, I have another book that I'll bring copies down, which is, um, I think it's called Bees of the World or Pollinators Up Close or something like that. And it's a picture book using all the... Really intense stacked photos that we take, which, by the way, are all public domain and available for download at their original high resolution on our Flickr account. But it's uh, oh, gosh. You know, it's got short accounts and it's designed to be something that's available. Hang on for one second. Yes, sir. What do we got? All right, I'm back. <laughs> wow, a
0: room filled with thousands of bees. Oh, yeah, we've
1: got in the lab right now, you know, we don't really, we keep a synoptic collection, but, um, I probably have a hundred thousand bees, um, that remain to be identified here. That's, that's a problem, right? Um, I can't keep up with the identifications.
0: That's, uh, that's more than, uh, what would we list? 800 bee species? <laughs> um, well, good gosh. Well,
1: eight east of the Mississippi, there's about 800 and the U S there's about 4,000. And we say about, because we don't, uh even have names for some of the species you know, that's how poor the scientific field is where you know there's just not enough people to even do the work to uh name a species
0: good gosh well maybe maybe this uh program and your hike on saturday will introduce uh well Stimulate? how do i want to put it fan the flame of interest and uh, uh, new naturalist coming along to take it on. Well, I
1: hope so and I hope that everyone who has close-focusing binoculars brings them along. Even, even yep. regular bird-watching binoculars will focus pretty close, but if you have the, the kinds that are designed for butterflies, way
0: better. Okay, and that's what we need to look for. The And it says design for butterflies, or you said you mic, can, macro? You can, yeah, you
1: can just do a search on um, butterfly binoculars, and um, there's a whole series that are designed just for that. And the other part of the equation is that you guys need to arrange for nice, sunny,
0: warm weather. <laughs> Well, if I could copy today, I sure would. I sure would. This is a gorgeous day for it. But Sam, I know you're a busy man and I'm really looking forward to your presentation at the rally on... April the 29th. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're on April 28th, the Friday night. Yeah. I'll experiment with you guys on this new technique. Great. We're up for it. Okay. And I'll I'll order some good weather for you. All right. Well, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> thank, thank you, Sam. See you then. Okay. Bye now. A big thank you to Sam for taking time out of his busy day. As you can tell, we were there were several things going on at one time, so we kind of had to patch this together, but I think it turned out really, really well. He's got a lot of fascinating information and is anxious to get some new naturalists started in, in the new frontiers of the bee study, so I don't know what else to call it there. But anyway, this is going to be an exciting time at the Spring Naturalist Rally. A little housekeeping, we also have the garlic mustard pull coming the April the 22nd, which is a Saturday that will be at Roan Mountain. Sponsored, I should say, by our friends at the Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy. So check out the link to that. If you get the emails, this will be going out in the links in the email and also in the show notes. By the way, if you are not on our email list, be sure to go to Roan Mountain Radio and sign up. The email list is on the right-hand column there. You can get your news as hot off of the wires as anybody can. So that's the way to help us stay in touch. Also, if you're a member of the Friends of Roan Mountain, you're automatically on our email list, and I appreciate the opportunity to give you the heads-up information also. All right, that's it for this edition of Roan Mountain Radio, episode 73. I'm Ken Turner. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the mountain.